Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, the greatest conundrum in markets today, maybe I'm overstating it a little bit, is how on earth the economy is holding up so well despite rates increasing from their lowest levels on record, and I mean literally millennia, to, let's call it relatively restrictive territory. We have in the US the most predicted recession of all time, but hasn't technically occurred yet. And even with some areas of the economy contracting, like retail sales in Australia and overseas, and some commentators arguing that things are pretty rough, markets are increasingly confident that we are actually going to avoid a downturn altogether. It's quite a challenge to work out where we're going. Today, I'm joined by Anthony Doyle from Fire Trail, who loves talking about this stuff, and we love talking to him. And we can talk about what this might mean for markets and the economy, which way this is going to play out. Anthony, thanks so much for joining me. Cheers, Gemma. Thanks. It's exciting times. It's always something to talk about, but this is really kind of amazing. We were so sure that this sort of tightening cycle with rates going from 0.1% negative rates in real terms everywhere to 4.1% in Australia, 5 plus percent in most other developed markets, that's going to have to cause some real problems. The economy is going to slow down. We're going to head into recession. That's a hard landing, right? Talk to us about what that would really look like if it played out. A hard landing? Mm. So hard landing would be defined as a significant deterioration in the labour market. So you would see you know, mass unemployment. Um, so we're currently running at around 3.5% there or thereabouts, which is defined as full employment. Essentially, if you want a job, you can get one. Um, that's the characterisation of the Australian economy at the moment. So I'm talking if the unemployment rose to four and a half, five percent, that would be a hard landing type scenario for the Australian economy. Now, the reason why uh, equity markets have done well this year and why economists have been caught on the back foot from the most forecasted recession in history is the fact that the labour market has stood up um, and hasn't deteriorated to the extent that economists would assume when they apply their conventional models to the Australian and the global economy. So that's a hard landing, lots of people out of work. And I assume lots of business failure as well. Oh, yeah, of course. So, you know, you're not even, uh, you know, the reason that businesses are laying off workers is because obviously they're finding their balance sheets under pressure. And a rise in unemployment would naturally result in household income and household balance sheets coming under pressure. And that's when you start to see house prices deteriorate as people begin to find it more and more difficult to pay their mortgages and service their mortgages. So what's starting to happen, and you pointed out that markets have held up really well because unemployment stayed really low, is the narrative's changed and suddenly even the RBA is talking about the possibility of a soft landing, that Goldilocks scenario where we can raise rates but things don't break. You talk about what that really looks like. I mean, do we have any historical precedent for a soft landing in an environment like this? Yeah, Aussies, Aussies are used to it. You know, it was before COVID, it was 30 years of an environment where there was no inflation, 
and the economy was constantly expanding. So that's called a nice, a nice economy, right? <laughs> as opposed to a, a dung economy, which is deflation, unemployment, and no growth. So Aussies are very used to an environment of a, a soft landing type scenario, a Goldilocks type scenario, where the economy is neither too hot nor nor too cold, and similar for inflation. Um, so, in terms of the outlook, what has really caught economists uh, by surprise is, as you say, that the global economy has continued to register solid economic growth in the face of much higher interest rates. And I think we sometimes forget what an extraordinary environment we've lived through, you know, the last three years. And as a result of unconventional monetary policy, money printing, zero interest rates, negative interest rates, a lot of unusual things have been occurring in capital markets. And we're still digesting and still trying to understand what the ramifications of some of these extraordinary policies were. One has certainly been inflation, um, really caused by a supply chain crunch, which has largely resolved itself now. And the second real impetus to, to inflation that the global and the, the Aussie economy has experienced is the result of the reopening boom. We were all at home building up uh, savings. Interest rates were low. Even we, some of us were experiencing government handouts. And when the economy reopened again, we spent with a vengeance. And that's still occurring today, um, particularly given, as I said, the low level of unemployment. Um, and as we rotated our spending from stuff, stuff on Amazon, goods, you know, uh, home renovations to services, I'll never forget the, the line to the hairdresser um, <laughs> in my local suburb when we reopened, but also going out to restaurants. And I'm sure Aussies, um, both the domestic holiday boom, but it seems like every second person is off in Europe at the moment as well. We shifted our spending to services. And for those types of uh, jobs or those types of industries, you need people working. You, know, you need someone to give you a haircut, for example. So it's typically more labour reliant, the services industry. We've seen inflation come quite significantly higher above central bank, interest, central bank targets, and that's now really resolving itself. Um, and since uh, the economy has stood up to this test, markets are increasingly confident, and central banks as well, that they can thread that that thread that needle and engineer what is described as a soft landing. It's quite incredible. I think everyone's been extraordinarily critical of central banks for quite a while now. The zero interest rate policy was such a shock to anyone who has ever studied economics or has any sort of basic understanding of how economies should work. And when you talked earlier about normal rates of unemployment, you know, when I was at university, a normal rate of unemployment or full employment was around 6%. The idea you can get it down to three and a half without things going crazy is kind of amazing. So we've seen these incredibly, as you say, extraordinary measures being taken, very unusual measures being taken. A lot of people were highly critical of central banks for engineering a lot of this stuff, and yet they might just pull it off. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not just the monetary policy side, the interest rate side. We sometimes forget that we had a huge amount of Keynesian fiscal stimulus globally where governments really expanded their balance sheets 
and debt to GDP levels have risen significantly as a result. And then you saw, obviously, central banks beginning to buy government debt, including our own central bank via yield curve control, for example. Now, what essentially, after the GFC, what essentially happened was there was a big focus on debt to GDP ratios. So austerity was the name of the game throughout the world. And that really resulted in the European debt crisis and weak economic growth in Europe in particular. COVID was seen as a license to print money from the central banks, but also governments. They found uh, that they could lower taxes and and implement policies such as JobKeeper, and they had to um, in order to keep economies alive during those lockdowns and those shutdown periods. Now, what has happened in this post or reopening environment is that central banks are the only game in town. So obviously politicians have found it difficult to tighten the fiscal reins. They've found it difficult to turn off those fiscal taps because guess what? Voters don't like higher taxes. And so this is why you don't hear much about modern monetary theory anymore. Central banks are the only game in town. They're very easy to blame for governments and uh, you only have to see Philip Lowe. You know, he's been a a victim of that essentially in that uh, a very well-esteemed central bank governor internationally managing monetary policy with the help of the RBA board through an extremely difficult time and his term wasn't renewed um, by the government um, and it will end in September. So one ramification is that central banks have lost a little bit of independence throughout this entire time period and they are fighting for their independence, fighting for that inflation credibility, inflation fighting credibility and essentially they're doing a a pretty good job of of doing it by raising interest rates and taking some of the heat out of the economy. So the challenges now that are being discussed, and love your thoughts on this, there's real concern about homeowners with mortgages, right? So the dramatic increase in mortgage rates affecting a small proportion of the population. And I use the term small carefully, Uh, we have a meaningful proportion of the adult population who own their own home outright. And it's a larger proportion than has been in the past. If we look at when we had a tightening cycle in the late 80s, early 90s, which everyone in sort of previous generations like to refer to when they paid 18% rates, most homeowners had a mortgage. Now we have more homeowners without a mortgage than with a mortgage. And those who have a mortgage, there will be those who took one out before COVID. And so when things when rates fell super low, they did really well. Happy days. You can get ahead on your mortgage. Those who took one out toward the end of that zero interest rate period are under a huge amount of pressure. So you've got those people under a huge amount of pressure. You've got renters under a lot of pressure. Rents have risen dramatically. And even though rents are captured in CPI, they're not reflected in CPI to the same extent they're reflected in your income or in your expenses, right? You don't spend 7% of your income on rent. You spend a hell of a lot more than that. So there are sectors of the consumer base who are under real pressure. And then you've got other sectors who are doing absolutely fine. Those who have deposits and no mortgage, they're very happy right now. Is that mix creating additional challenges for trying to bring down inflation? Or do you think it's just coming down naturally and so we can maintain this kind of Goldilocks scenario? Yeah, I mean, interest rates are known as an extremely blunt policy tool um, and they affect people in different ways and they're highly, they have high distributional effects and they typically impact low-income earners 
over high income earners and they impact different parts of society, um, as you say. So those that have owned their home for a long time um, and have a lot of equity in their home uh, are largely uh, immune or, or largely feeling these interest rates to a, a much less extent than someone that's just bought a home and is, you know, maxed out their, their leverage in order to try and get a, a foot on the property ladder. So these are all things that we have to consider, you know, when interest rates are rising and consider for the outlook for the Australian economy. Also fixed different states differently as well. Um, you've seen that in Europe where, you know, Germany, the, the state of interest rates there, it's arguably too low. And for a place like uh, Greece or Italy, arguably it's too high. Similar for the Australian states. Um, so Victoria being a large manufacturing state, they're feeling the brunt of interest rates to a much larger extent than Western Australia and Queensland that have benefited from higher resources prices um, and the, the reopening of China and, and fueling that commodity demand there. So it is it does have different impacts in different parts of the economy, different households. What's really interesting uh, in terms of the data is that when we look at consumption and retail sales, it does look like, and even earnings uh, in terms of Australian companies, particularly in that consumer discretionary space, households are pulling back on a lot of that consumer discretionary spend. Um, the stuff that, you know, a new home or a new car, for example, you can put off those purchases in the short term. Higher interest rates are having an impact. Um, and the RBA, in terms of their research, suggests that Australian households, what they speculate is that Australian households, they know that those fixed rates are potentially moving or are moving to variable rates at some point, but they don't adjust their spending habits until that actually happens. Oh, interesting. Uh, so they don't get ahead of it. Um, they don't pretend really? like my fixed rate's moving from two and I'll get a variable rate at five. I should yeah. adjust my balance sheet accordingly months out. Um, the RBA speculates that no hard data, but this is what they think is going on. Australian households actually adjust their spending when the rate goes up, when the mortgage payment goes up. That's so interesting because there are a lot of commentators out there speculating the opposite of that, that people are getting ahead, that they've been accruing savings knowing that the time is going to come shortly where they need to start paying it down. But you're saying no, that's... No, so the RBA, I mean, they re released their statement on monetary policy uh, last week uh, and they've done a lot of analysis. You know, this is a key area of focus for them and arguably it's a, a reason for why they paused in terms of their rate hiking cycle in August. And we may have seen the end of higher rates here in Australia because they are waiting to see the impact, the lagged impact of higher interest rates on household balance sheets. Now, one piece of work that they have done is they've shown that over the last two or three years, exactly that. When interest rates went to zero, Aussies kept their mortgage repayments at the prior levels. So they got ahead. But with the increase in rates that we've seen, that disposable income or those savings, they're gone. So Australians can no longer do that. The average Australian household can no longer do that. They're not saving anything. They're not putting anything in the offset accounts. They're paying off the, the mortgage now because it has reset to a much higher extent. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think that has quite significant implications. I know when we look at uh, NAB surveys, and this is about intentions. So 
always interesting looking at intentions, whether they play out or not. When we look at our data on spending, and it's real-time data, the lovely thing about working in a bank is you can check at the end of the day what people spend. You don't have to wait for a couple of months until the ABS has got all the data and collated it from all the different sources and chopped it up and given it back to you. We can kind of see what's happening in real time. There's some things that people have cut back on already, and the one that blew my mind, uh, which has been talked about on this podcast, actually, is private schooling. Mm. It's been cut back already. I'm like, how do you stop that? You just pull your kids out or not sending them? I don't know. That was really interesting. But when we look at intentions, in the top five things people say they're going to cut back on, first of all, they're saying they will cut back. And secondly, they're saying they will cut back on things like travel. Mm. So travel is in the top five things they will cut back on. Private school's amazing to me. Gym normally falls. Gym's always one, you know, those, is it all your different um, streaming services and all that kind of stuff. But there's some big ones like travel that are coming up quite clearly in the data that people think they're going to be cutting back on despite the fact, as you say, it feels like everybody's away at the moment. So when we look at intentions, is that telling us anything about whether or not that soft landing is more or less likely? Yeah, so consumer confidence is extremely low in Australia at the moment and, uh, you know, intentions are, are part of that, obviously. And I think it's really interesting in terms of the conversations you have at the barbecue now, Gemma, it's not about house prices, it's about the cost of living and it's about how expensive things are getting, you know, whether it be your coffee or beer in the pub um, or even, you know, your grocery spending on, on things that you, you need to consume, you know, as a, as a household. Um, and that's right throughout, you know, the, the demographics from uni students to, to families to, to um, baby boomers and retirees. So one, you know, we have these lead indicators um, that we look at, um, such as um, in terms of the labour force, job ads and you know, hiring intentions, consumer intentions. But it has really caught economists by surprise to the extent that they're now revising, consistently revising their forecasts. And it's also surprised a lot of investors, particularly the bond market that has continually priced in rate cuts, only to be surprised by the extent to which inflation is sticky. And globally, central banks, including the RBA, are going to be very slow to declare victory in the war on inflation. And they'll really want to see meaningful progress towards those central bank targets that they have of, and for the RBA, it's between two and 3%, similar for other central banks around the world. But much will depend upon the outlook for, for the labour market, as I said. So much of the speculation being that unemployment will rise significantly. Central banks have accumulated enough ammunition that they will be able to stimulate the economy via interest rate cuts very, very quickly. You know, I'm, I'm less sure about that. And what we're seeing at, at Firetrail is that potentially inflation is more embedded in the system than many are expecting at the moment. Yeah, so I did want to go to your point about inflation because I find this really interesting. There was a lot of, for those who didn't study economics, you've got supply push inflation, you've got demand pull inflation, but interest rates really only work on demand pull. They're not that great on the supply side. It doesn't matter how much the RBA increases rates, you're not going to be able to do much about oil prices or cost of producing steel in China. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a lot of things you can't affect. So what you do is crush demand Mm. when you're raising rates. What are you seeing in the inflation data that makes you think it's sticky and when you look at markets, how are they going to respond to that? Yeah, so certainly 
think that inflation is coming down at the headline level. Um, so when, when we talk about a headline level, it's the stuff we spend money on, right? So it's a consumer basket of goods and services. And when we talk about headline inflation, we're talking about um, including food and fuel. You're exactly right. So essentially what the RBA and central banks look at is a less volatile measure of inflation that excludes food and energy. Even though you pay money on it, <laughs> excludes house prices. Um, drives you know, me mad, right? I shouldn't say, it, but it drives me mad because you're like, if I am an individual <laughs> in the world, I have to pay for housing, food and the ability to get around. <laughs> the fact that you strip that out does not change the fact that my lifestyle is infinitely more expensive and that's the core of what I have to pay, right? I can cut back on clothes and travel, that's no problem, but I can't cut back on, well, maybe sort of cut back a little bit on food, but hopefully not too much, right? Yeah, well, behaviourally it's very interesting because when you're going to your employer in a tight labour market, you don't say, well, I want to an increase in wages of core CPI. Yeah. You, know, you say, well, inflation, you know, inflation's up 7.5%. Mm. I've gone backwards by 7.5% if you keep my salary the same. And if you don't give me an increase, well, I'll go somewhere else because the labour market's that tight. So that's how wage growth starts to become embedded in the system. So companies and businesses then try and pass those rising wage costs on to the end consumer. And it's a vicious cycle, um, as you said, you know, that cost push versus demand pull inflation. So uh, essentially, it's really interesting from an investor's perspective as well, because one of the aims of long-term investing is to generate positive real returns. So it's not good enough to just generate positive returns in your portfolio. For example, uh, as I said, if inflation is running at 7.5%, as it touched on in Australia um, in the second quarter of this year, year on year, if you've delivered a 5% return in your portfolio, well, you've actually gone back backwards by 2.5%. So investors are trying to generate above inflation returns to protect their standards of living from the eroding effects of inflation as well. So certainly headline inflation is decelerating and we have seen the supply side of the equation really resolve itself as economies have come out of lockdown and trade has begun again. Um, but on the more sticky, you know, some of the, the more um, structural themes that are coming through that is suggesting that inflation might be a little bit higher than what we became used to pre-COVID. Um, for example, you know, essentially not entirely, but deglobalization. So I think governments around the world are a lot more conscious of the reliance that they had on China in particular to source many of the items. Just even think about basic PPE, for example. So we're seeing a lot of foreign direct investment from companies um, securing supply chains in other parts of the world. And, and Mexico has been a big beneficiary of that, um, being very close in proximity to the United States, for example. So um, industrial companies shifting production or moving some of their production from China to South America has been a, a theme that we've been experiencing. Um, we've seen, obviously, uh, in the current environment, income has grown for that cohort of wealthy Australians and wealthy individuals around the world. Um, in terms of their term deposits. So they can um, roll into higher and higher rates of term deposits. So their income is actually growing in that sense. And they continue to spend as well, um, particularly on that services side, having experiences. Uh, and in Australia, 
we've opened up significantly for migration um, and population growth. And that's why you're having the impact in the housing markets, the various regional housing markets that we are seeing because um, there's been a relaxation, for example, of student visas, how long students can stay after the completion of their studies and population growth is running um, as hot as it's ever done, you know, in terms of the Australian population growing quickly. Um, And all that adds to the demand side of inflation. So as an investor, you look at all of this and go, right, so far economists have not read this perfectly well. Markets are holding up remarkably well, remarkably well, all things considered. You know, you would not imagine in a scenario where you've had 400 basis points of interest rate increases that were completely unexpected by the RBA itself, if nothing else, in the space of 18 months that the market would be largely unchanged Um, or in the US it's bounced back 30% from its lows, which is just unbelievable. As an investor, how do you look at this? Yeah, so um, we listed our fund on the ASX in October of last year and... So you have perfect numbers now. Yeah, so, (laughs) I mean, I I made a joke that, um, you know, I, I rang the bell at the ASX when the fund was listed and I said, oh, that's the bottom of the bear market. Everyone can relax. <laughs> and it actually was. Um, nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. So timing is everything. But, you know, our fund over that time period to the end of July is up 27%. That's crazy. The market's up 23%. Really, you know, the global equity market, really dominated by those big tech mega cap names, those AI beneficiaries, those artificial intelligence beneficiaries, you know, who would know that rolling out chat GPT would put a a real rocket under that part of the market, particularly after the very poor 2022 that what we describe as growth companies, those companies that um, are more expensive than the market as a whole because they're growing faster. Um, they've had a, a fantastic 2023, really vintage year. Um, yeah, I think Meta's up almost 100%, for example. So, I mean, it's been extraordinary, but what often goes overlooked as well is, as I said, it's a really unusual time. So you'd think with much higher interest rates that US home prices would be collapsing or Aussie home prices would be collapsing, but it simply hasn't been the case. So home prices in the US peaked to trough 3%. <laughs> And the it's reason the trough. when US home builders are up 30% this year. And so you think about, well, why is that the case? It's because the supply of homes on the market, both in Australia and in the US, for example, um, has absolutely collapsed. So it's crunch supply. Those that own a home don't want to sell, particularly in the US, because they've locked in a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at, let's say, 1.5%. And today, if they wanted to buy a new home, they'd have to sell their existing home and get a mortgage at 7%. And so under what scenario does that make sense? Not much. Um, And those that want access to finance, um, they can't get a loan, right? So they can't get a loan because mortgage rates are so high. And it's similar here in Australia. So because interest rates have risen as quickly as they have, the average borrower's capacity to borrow has fallen by about 20% here in Australia, 20 to 25%. Again, that's analysis that the RBA has conducted. So when you've seen uh, these unusual things going on in the housing market, the small home builders have found it difficult to refinance. They've suffered. The large home builders that have a dominant position in the marketplace have been um, really 
owning the market and hoovering up um, demand in the market. So you've seen a big um, increase in construction in the US of new homes, and that's having ramifications. Um, and that's why you've seen, again, a really strong US labour market and similar here in Australia because of the infrastructure boom that's going on. So tradies still remain employed. So there's un- these unusual ramifications that are going on that we are starting to understand now, but it really speaks to the benefits of diversification in your equity portfolio because you just do not know from one time to the next what sector or what company within which sector or what style of investing, you know, growth versus value versus cyclical versus defensive style of investing is really going to have a vintage year in the marketplace, particularly when things are as uncertain as they are today, given the historic increase in interest rates that we've we've that we are continue to experience. Yeah, I can't think of a more telling way to wrap up the scenario we're in right now, because it doesn't matter how well informed you are and how astute your view, there are factors that people do not consider dominant that are driving all sorts of things. Uh, and your point about housing is a classic one. Yeah, we were all so certain that housing was going to collapse. It was so certain. Yeah, it's, it's hard without a big <laughs> d- deterioration in the labour market. You know, people yeah. will pay and their mortgage first. Hundreds of thousands first. of people joining the economy, They'll right? pull their kids out of schools um, and, you know, they'll always, they'll always pay that mortgage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so low default rates. And so, you know, similar when you're you're thinking about the outlook, you know, really what drives markets in the short term is that sentiment factor. And, you know, there's an old saying in print media, if it bleeds, it leads, unfortunately. (laughs) You know, no one likes good news, everyone wants bad news, and that's how you sell more and more papers. But over the long run, what And drive clicks, actually. Yeah, drive clicks. Mm. You know, over the long run, what, what drives an asset's valuation or a company's share price is earnings. Um, and that's one of our philosophies at Firetrail, that share prices follow earnings. Having a good diversification in your portfolio of value and growth companies and ultimately doing your homework. You know, you have to do the bottom-up fundamental analysis and take that medium-term view. You're going to be pretty well set up to, to deliver returns and meet your long-term investment and savings goals covered a lot of ground. Anthony, you've got some awesome stuff on your website because you've started some sort of insight series charts, weekly things you're talking about and whatever. It's really good. Where do people go to find out more about you guys and what you're up to? Yeah, so I helped to manage a portfolio named the Firetrail S3 Global Opportunities Fund. And as I mentioned, it's listed on the ASX as an exchange traded mutual fund or an active ETF is the lingo. The ticker is S3GO. And you can visit the ASX and we publish our full holdings. So typically around 30 companies. So you can go there, see what we own, um, full disclosure, weights, all that kind of thing. Um, So that's one area of information. The other one is visit firetrail.com or connect with us on LinkedIn. Um, We're very active in being transparent and communicating with investors on how we're seeing the world and providing access. Typically, you know, you see the portfolio manager in a lot of marketing collateral, but we provide a lot of access to actually the bottom-up insights that our analysts are providing. So you'll hear from Annabelle and Georgia and Fred um, and Justin, you know, there's uh, 23 individuals at Firetrail um, and you'll see a different person every week talking about something that's interesting in the market at any given time. 
Oh, well, everybody loves that. We all want to know interesting things happening in the market. Anthony Doyle from Firetrail, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you so much for joining us also. We love hearing from you. We get fabulous feedback. We love wanting or hearing about what you want to know more about. Uh, Any topics you're keen on or guests, we know Anthony is always super popular. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth.com at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.